0: Hey, welcome to night school. And you know what? I've become so self conscious of the consistency of that, of how consistently I say welcome to night school in that way, that I don't even think I do it anymore. I don't even think I say welcome to night school because I'm that self conscious of it. And speaking of being self conscious, I got to give a little acknowledgement here to Jonathan in Montreal or somewhere in Quebec. I think he's in Montreal, but I know he's. Over there, somewhere in Quebec, uh, he's a long, been a long-time listener, and he was talking to me today. He's a friend of mine, and he said that he, he'd finally caught up to 2021 in terms of you know episodes and of the show. But he said that he was listening to this show to help himself learn English because they, of course, speak French. In Quebec, and he was saying that this show was helping him learn English. And I mean, I know that he understands English and stuff, but he was saying he was legitimately listening to this to help improve his English. And that's like one of those moments where it's just like, oh no, <laughs> it's almost like what it makes me think of
1: is uh, like you hear stories about people like a, like a group of Chinese men came to the U.S. and they learned English by watching Rugrats. A little boy, a
0: little boy from Africa was adopted by parents in the U.S., and all he saw on TV was reruns of Happy Days. So he says, hey, he talks like the Fonz. This little kid, he learned English from Happy Days, and he talks just like the Fonz. You know, it's like one of those kind of things where it's just like, oh, no, he he learned English from G.I. Joe cartoons. Like when Jonathan said that... This show helps him with his English. I'm like, you know, keep in mind, like, a lot of the things I say aren't normal figures of speech that people actually use. Those weird things I say, they aren't actually, like, American figures of speech that make sense in English. Like, a lot of what I'm saying is total nonsense. Although, that'd be amazing if some of that took off. Yeah, I guess in America, they they call it coronivite. And on the subject of Canada, I was thinking about the thing that terrifies me the most. And no, it's not Canada. But I don't know if that's a question everyone can answer. Like, if you were to ask somebody, what's the thing that scares you the most? And for me, it's cars driving with their headlights off at night. And the reason why I think of Canada is because the first moment when I realized that, when I realized how much that terrifies me... It was on a trip some years back. I was with my buddy Nick, and we were going up to a, a cabin in the mountains of Vancouver. So the, the snowy mountains in Vancouver, I guess, province. I guess it's a
1: province.
0: And so we were on our way up there, and so there's these highways that kind of wind through the mountains, and it was on the dark side of dark. Like, it was still dusk, but it was on the dark side of dusk. Like the dark side of dusk. Not the dark side of dark is what I meant to say. It was on the dark side of dusk. And there was this car somewhere behind us. And keep in mind, this is on the highway. So cars are going fast. And they're just weaving between lanes with their headlights off. And it was late enough to where you couldn't actually see them. You could just see this silhouette moving in front of the headlights of other cars. Like you knew where that car was because suddenly another car's headlights were blocked. You're like, oh, they went over into that, that lane. And it's not like they were blindly, like, weaving. They were just switching a lot of lanes. And it's one of those things, like, one reason why I find that so terrifying is it's like a... You're, like, communicating your own inhumanity to people. You're basically saying, like, I'm not aware enough to know that something's wrong. Because anytime I've gotten in my car and, like, yeah, sometimes you get in your car and you'll drive, like, a block... And you suddenly go, oh, my headlights are off. Something felt weird. Oh, it does. my headlights. That's, I don't think that's an abnormal experience. Like you just kind of go, oh, you know, something feels kind of weird. Something doesn't feel like the normal, you know, it doesn't feel like normal driving. And then, yeah, you realize that you were driving with your headlights off. And, like, even if there's streetlights, even if it's a well-lit street, you still feel like something's off if your headlights aren't on. So the fact that somebody could go a significant distance like that, to me, tells me, like, there's either something cognitively wrong with them, they're on drugs or alcohol, or there's just something off. They're not aware. They're not paying attention. Maybe something really bad just happened in their life and they're distracted. But if you're that distracted that you're not using your headlights... After dark, or even on the dark side of dusk. You know, it's just, it's a problem and it's scary. And in car form, like what that car represents is completely inhuman. It's almost like an insect. And so, being in the Canadian mountains and just like seeing, knowing that this person was somewhere behind us, just and they were switching lanes a lot. So it was almost like this ghost ship that was just... It's like somebody cut the ship's rope and it was just like swaying around in the water. That's honestly what it looked like behind us. Just this dark shape. Like it didn't even... When I say inhuman, it's like it didn't even seem like there was a man in there. Like it wouldn't even surprise me if there was a skeleton. Like it wouldn't surprise me if like that car got pulled over. There's like a It's a, a speed... It's a, it's a chase... The cops, the Royal Canadian Police, the, the the Mounties are after him. And they finally get him to pull over and there's just a skeleton at the wheel. That's how it feels, like just some inhuman presence, like some maybe formerly human. Maybe it's not entirely inhuman. When I see a car driving with its headlights off, it makes me think formerly human. And I saw a couple earlier tonight, but there is a grace period. Like, I'm of the opinion that you should flip the headlights on at six o'clock, just no matter what. Like, I'm of the opinion that if it's six o'clock during summer, like in the winter, you should have them on at three o'clock. If it's if it's winter time, basically, you should have your lights on a couple hours before it gets dark. That's my philosophy. Like the second that the sun starts going down, just err on the side of caution and put your headlights on. If it's gray and misty, if it's raining, if it's a foggy day, obviously, you put them on all day. And uh, it, it just seems so obvious to me to do that, because it's not even about other people. You know, a turn signal is a courtesy to other people. And it's a the right thing to do the right thing to do is to use your turn signal and it's a courtesy to other people but your own headlights aren't they are but they're also for your own use too. like you need your headlights to be on too. it's not just something to show other people that you're there headlights aren't just for other drivers they're also there for you so that's what's so strange when someone doesn't use them and of course there are people who deliberately don't use them like someone who's committing a crime or casing a house You know, somebody who's about to do something wrong will turn their headlights off to, I guess, avoid suspicion, even though that's the most suspicious thing you could ever do in a car is drive around with your headlights off. But I get it. I get why people who are committing a crime turn them off because in that moment they don't want to be noticed on that street. They don't want somebody to see their license plate number. You know, there's practical reasons why a criminal turns them off. Uh, but uh, but that said, it's like if you see a car doing that, immediately they're suspicious. I mean, I've called the cops on somebody before because they were driving like way too far without their lights on. <laughs> this, is what a, this is what a little snitch I am. But no, really, I did. There was a car. There was more going on with them. It was like their headlights were off and then there was just more like spending way too much time at each stop sign. There was just they seemed impaired. And, and like I said before, it's like, if you're not impaired, what's going on with you that you can go a significant distance without your headlights? But anyway, I called this car and I said, hey, hey, cops. This is a potential drunk driver. He's driving with his headlights off. No, but I, I will call the cops on a suspected drunk driver. That's the one time when I just, you know, my inner old lady. My, my old inner lady kicks in and is just like you know what I'd I'd rather be safe than sorry if the cop sees this person and decides not to pull them over or if the cop does pull them over and it turns out they're not drunk well you know they're not going to jail and hopefully it's a lesson to drive with your lights on because I just find it extremely suspicious and I'm terrified of it I'm terrified when I see a car like that and my mind instantly goes back to that car on the Canadian highway and I think it was a jeep you know, it's all very amorphous and ambiguous, like a shadow. Truly, that's all we could see, is just this shadow. I feel like it was backlit. I think it was backlit by the sun going down. So, really, all we could see is just this
1: shape. Hey, what kind of car is that? Oh, it's a shape. That's that's the new car. It's called a shape. A skeleton drives it around.
0: <laughs> it's one of those things, though, you know, that... Uh, I can pinpoint that as the thing that scares me the most. Because so much is represented within that. You don't know if it's just a harmless mistake. It could be the worst thing or the best thing in the world. That car without headlights on, anything could be in there. It's like a present. It's like a bomb. That's kind of what it's like. It is kind of like a bomb. And it's just, it's one of those things that... A basic way to communicate your humanity while driving a vehicle is to use your headlights. And again, it's not just for other people, it's also for you. It's letting people know, you know, that, hey, I'm out here, I'm one of you, but it's also you yourself, or like, I need to see. So it's just funny to me that somebody could not notice that. And uh, for that matter, like, you know, I don't know, it's just a, it's such a given, like, how can I communicate my humanity? How can I... How can I avoid giving other drivers the impression that I'm a formerly human, borderline inhuman insect, shadow of an insect, The Shape? It's like a cheesy
1: sci-fi horror movie, The Shape. Oh, have you seen The Shape? No, but we're going Friday. We're going Friday night. I heard it's a car. Hey, have you seen The Shape? No, but uh, what is it? The, the the preview didn't really show what it is. Well, listen, I, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but uh, I heard it's just a, a car. I heard the shape is about a car without its headlights on. No way, dude. It's
0: like one of those things, like if you were around when... Uh, I don't know, sometimes, sometimes horror movies will come out and they don't show the monster. I mean, I think that's a pretty common approach or at least it used to be where it's like they don't show the mo- what the monster actually looks like in the preview because part of the the reason you go see the movie is to see the freaking monster, you know. That's obviously a a marketing technique. And that's kind of what this is. Like a movie comes out called The Shape, which must be a real movie. I'm sure there's a real movie called The Shape out there. It turns out it's a fitness movie. It's about getting in shape. But uh now, I'm sure there's a movie called The Shape. But this movie, there can be more than one movie with uh, there can be more than one movie with the title The Shape. But with the shape, it, it doesn't show you what the shape actually is. When you watch the preview, you, you just see terrified people in cars, you see terrified people on the street, you see the sun going down over a highway, and little do you know the shape is actually a guy, a skeleton an ex man driving around, weaving around. I don't even I, see I don't even know if you can call that driving. When you're a skeleton sitting in the driver's seat of the shape I don't know I don't think you can actually call that driving. I think that's just autopilot. I don't even know if you can call that pilot. You don't call it anything. That's why it's the shape. It's just this amorphous, shadowy shape. Just floating around behind you, just weaving around the open seas of the highway like a ghost ship. But anyway, uh, you know, something I want to mention is uh, I think a lot of people right now are feeling a certain void. Not that that's uncommon. I think people feel the void a lot. But, you know, I'm realizing that right now where it kind of feels like, first of all, I'm not banking on anything. You know, obviously, I mean, in, in recent episodes, I've done it and I see a lot of people talking about, oh, the end of Coronivai. CoronaVai over, you know, and I'm not going to talk about anything being over or especially, I think a better way to put it would be, I'm not going to talk about the way things are until that's actually the way things are. Right now, I'm not going to assume anything. I'm going to hope for the best in just every respect. But right now, at this minute, I'm going to talk about how things are when they actually are that way. And I don't think that they're that way yet. And you can see where a lot of people are feeling that void, where it's like, oh, things things are looking up, but yet there is something empty to it. It's like, And it's empty in the sense that I have to fill this space with something now. Like, people, that'd be a better way of putting it, because when you say, like, people are feeling the void, that sounds like people are depressed, which they are, but what I really mean is there's this empty space, there's a void that can be filled, and people want nothing more than to fill it. But what do you fill it with? You know, for a lot of people, that's life as, as usual, life as normal. Oh, I can't wait to go back to normal. And, and that's good. I'm not making fun of that even. It's, you know, people who people whose idea of, like, good and normal is restaurants and seeing people. Those are cool. Those are really good, nice values to have, honestly. And so, I, you know, I'm not even mocking anybody who's like, well, now that things are, now that we suddenly have this, like, space to fill, now that we have more things we can fill this space with i'd like to fill it with the things that i miss the most and it's like yeah going out seeing people you know the people who i I think people are going to have a lot of fun partying some people aren't but i think a lot of people who party are going to have a lot of fun doing it and i wish them nothing but the best but thinking about that same space to fill because i feel that There's a part of me that doesn't, you know, kind of what I was talking about in the last episode or a recent episode about being able to live this way forever. It's not that I necessarily want to, but I think I went into this with the mindset of thinking, I don't necessarily want to live this way forever, but I want it to, I want that to be like, if I have to, I want to be okay with that. I think that's how I would put it. I don't want to live this way forever. But if I have to, I want to find a way of making that okay. And how I was able to do that was, first of all, by, by not really changing that much. Like, yeah, I socialize a little less. You know, I, I did do the whole, like, going to the grocery store once a week or once every two weeks thing that they were making a big deal about, whereas I would normally go every day of the week. It's a good week if I'm going to the grocery store every day to buy two things. Uh, you know, there's things like that. and I don't, and I, I'm really, I really don't want to get in, I said it before, but I, I just got to stress, I really don't want to get into this whole Coronavi diary. Looking back at the Coronivai. Looking back at what we did to cope with the coronavirus, nobody's ever going to want to hear that, first of all. Because it was such a collective experience, nobody's going to want to hear about somebody's coronavirus partially because you already experienced it with them firsthand because all they were doing was expressing themselves about it. <laughs> you know, so that's one side of it. But the other side of it is I, I just don't want to talk about anything right now until it's here. And I don't even know what that thing is going to be like I talking about the people a minute ago, like, they want to fill the void with the things that they miss about what they considered normal life. And I encourage them to do that. You know, I do. I, I think that's what a lot of people need to just get by. But I know speaking for myself, like I've been procrastinating and I've gotten good in the last few years about procrastinating. I used to be a terrible procrastinator, and I still do sometimes. But this was really just a... For me, like, when I talk about, like, going back to normal or just anything like that, for me, like, I can't backdate this to, like, March 2020. Like, for beginners, I have to backdate it to, what, December 5th, 2019, like, when my mom got sick, and then she died five days later. You know, I have to backdate... My weird trip to then, and of course, my weird trip's been going on long before that. I mean, I I have to—that's what I mean. Like, just for beginners, if we want to talk about going back to normal, I'm looking at November 2019 because my mom died December 10th, 2019, and I had basically two and a half months of just dealing with that trip on its own, feeling the pressure of that, feeling the reality of that feeling the supernatural nat- reality of that. And then Coronavi came, which in many ways was a blessing because I was feeling all this pressure. Like when my mom died, I was feeling all this pressure. Like, oh, I've got to get rid of a bunch of her things soon. I've got to wrap this up soon. I've got to do this soon. And while that would have been healthy in its own right, it's like there's no one way to handle things. In a way, getting like zapped and told, like, freeze, just sit there. Goodwill isn't even going to be open. Can't even get rid of anything. We're going to make you sit there with all your mom's things in isolation. And in, I think that was great. Honestly, I think some people would have wouldn't have handled that well. I think it was great for me because it allowed me just to sit there and say, hey, guess what? I get to just... Feel this. I don't even have to think about it. I just get to feel this right now, and I don't have to do anything. And while there are some things I had to do, I also put a lot of things on the back burner because that kind of became my philosophy. It was like the message seemed to be freeze. And so certain things got frozen. And uh, I wish there are some things I wish that I would have taken care of, you know, some things related. To just um, my mom's estate, you know, the finances, IRS stuff that I'm now dealing with now. But I I just kept putting things on the back burner. And, you know, it's like, oh, this thing needs to be fixed. Well, put it on the back burner because when you do hire somebody to fix things in the age of coronavirus, they do a half-assed job for full price because that aspect never got worked out or you hire someone to do a service, they can't do the level of service they would normally do, and their mind is elsewhere, like a driver who's not using his headlights, but then you still have to pay them the full amount. So a leaky faucet, you know, you just kind of let it go. I mean, obviously, it's something I could fix myself if I wanted to, but that's another part of the procrastination, is that it's another thing you don't deal with. And I mean, speaking about today, today was a trip because... I'm going through some tax stuff for my mom, from her estate and all that. And, uh, you know, there's a stack of papers. I mean, first of all, I've just been using her old room, her old office. It was She it was both her room and her office as, uh, you know, basically just a war zone. Like I pulled a bunch of boxes out, a bunch of photos out from under her bed, old photos, old family photos, and then just kind of left the boxes out, kind of pushed them off to the side. If I ordered something and it came in a box, I would just toss it on her old bed and just you realize like, oh, God, that's been there for a year. And that's what I've talked about before on this show about how like anything can become an institution in your house. Anything can become this thing that seems like it's always been there and just serves this function. And that happened to me in my last house where I lived in that house for seven and a half years And I do things like and it had a lot of space. It was like this cinder block shack exposed to the elements. But for whatever reason it you know it was like two rooms and a bathroom and a a little kitchen. So it was a small little place, but for some reason it had all this storage. Like all these closets, all these built-in shelves, these cupboards. For some reason, whoever made this weird little cinder block shack created a lot of space. And I had this one closet that just had a curtain. It didn't have a door, it had a curtain. And at some point, like I got a vacuum, and I just tossed the box in there, like didn't even flatten it, just tossed the box in there. And whenever you buy a product like that, you keep the box for a little while, because you're like, in case there's something wrong with it, and I need to return it, I'll want to have this box. But after a couple weeks go by, you forget about the box, like if it's not in your sight, like if the box isn't sitting out, you don't even think about the box again, you're just like, okay, the vacuum works, but you don't go and flatten the box that you put in a closet and and get rid of it. You just leave it there. And that's what I did at my last house where I would just, if I got some sort of new product, like I think multiple vacuum boxes were in that closet. I don't think it was just one vacuum box. I believe there were multiple vacuum boxes sitting there. But when I finally moved out, you know, after seven and a half years in that house, and I knew that I had kind of ignored that closet, you know, I knew that was a closet where, you know, I was worried about spiders. Maybe there was nothing gross. Like there was, there wasn't going to be anything filthy. You know, I'm not a filthy person. Like I'll leave things on it un, and I'll leave things unattended and they'll get dusty. But I don't think of dust as filth. Like maybe other people have different opinions. When someone says filthy, I think of something that used to be wet or organic in some way. I think of it as some sort of biological, organic matter, something that used to have maybe like a moistness or a wetness to it, like old food, you know, something that came out of someone's body. Maybe there's a leak, you know, mold. Like, that's what I think of when I hear filth, like filth to me is easily described as uh Filth to me would be easily described as like something that if you got it in your mouth, like if you got filth in your mouth, you would immediately start spitting. You would immediately want to wash your mouth out. Your night might be ruined. A couple days might be ruined until you manage to forget the fact that you had filth in your mouth. Like even if you spit it out, even if you got it out of your mouth, even if it caused you no harm, filth is something that if you get it in your mouth you're upset. You might even throw up. I don't feel that way about dust. Like if I, I've i certainly got dust in my mouth and I've never felt that it's gross. I don't even know what it is though. I don't even know what dust is. I just know that it's, it's extremely dry. It doesn't seem to be organic in origin. I mean, I think somebody at some point told me there were like skin cells because where does it come from? I mean, it obviously comes from I assume it comes from, like, activity. Like, I assume it comes from, like, a human being living in a place and doing things. It comes from, you know, the air, our bodies. I don't know. I don't even know. I know that it doesn't grow. I know that dust doesn't just grow on surfaces. It seems to land there. But it doesn't gross me out. You know, it makes you sneeze. Like, it's probably not ideal for your for your health, Although I don't know that it's dangerous. Like, it's not like
1: black mold. There's some black dust. Oh, man, I went I went into their house and there was black dust all over everything and it made me sick. You know,
0: you'd never hear about that. But it's not filth. That's my point is that, you know, my whole point is that while I will let a house get dusty, and this house right now is very dusty, I really have not been keeping up on cleaning But I, you know, I'm not a dirty person. I'm not a filthy person. In general, I, I would say lately I've been, you know, I haven't been showering as much as I could have. I haven't been cleaning the house as much as I could have. But I think I have, you know, a solid 30 years going back to as soon as I was able to take care of myself as like a child of being a clean person. But dust to me is not filth. But anyway, going back to this closet with the vacuum cleaner boxes, like, I knew there were, there, sh- there, shouldn't be anything filthy in there. But there was a part of me that didn't know for sure, because, you know, is there a spider nest? Because to me, like, an old spider nest is filth. To me, dead ants are filth. Like, bugs are filth. And that house was very exposed to the elements, so I'm like, I don't know, am I going to find, like, a dead mouse, a dead something a spider nest, you know, whatever I'm going to find. But when I opened that closet doing the cleaning, I was just amazed at how many cardboard boxes, how many product boxes, like seven and a half years worth of boxes. And it's not like it was like filled completely, like it was a deceptively large closet. But still, it was just... I, I apparently put every medium to large size box of any product I ever got, like multiple laptop boxes multiple vacuum boxes, I think like a four track box, uh, you know, multi track box. So it was just all this stuff piled in there. And I was like, Oh, this became the box closet. And I just threw things in there without looking, because I didn't have to. And so many things operate that way. Like I think back about childhood, and the example I always come up with, like in the same way that if you were to ask me, like, when is the moment that you realized your greatest fear, I would say, the moment I was on that Canadian highway and I saw the shape drifting around in front of the headlights. Like, if you were to ask me, like, when did you realize that, like, anything in your house or on your property, or anything in general, but using that kind of, like, house property example, like, when did you first become aware... Here I am interviewing myself. When did you first become aware that anything can become an institution? I would say there was this it was a stack of bricks that was behind what we called the playhouse at the house I grew up in. There was a kind of like a little I guess it was kind of a shed or something originally. And my dad built a second story onto it and then had a ladder, this kind of cool custom ladder that went from the bottom floor to the up floor, the, the up floor, uh, the bottom floor to the upper floor, up floor. And uh, my dad uh, had built that for my sister when she was a little girl, so they called it The Playhouse, and it was just kind of a cool place to hang out. That's the name of my nightclub. It's called The Playhouse. It's just a cool place to hang out. There probably are a million nightclubs called The Playhouse. It's like my movie. That my uh, I'm so original. I came up with a movie. It's a horror movie called The Shape. I came up with a nightclub. It's called The Playhouse. I just come up with the most original names. The shape, the shape House. <laughs> it's a BDSM club, except instead of uh, degenerates in gimp suits and chains and all that nonsense, it's just uh, people watching screens of cars driving with their headlights off with 3D glasses on because it looks like the car is coming at you. But anyway, you know, behind this playhouse... There was a stack of bricks, and it was there my entire childhood, and it wasn't perfectly even. and it was about four or five feet tall. It was a lot of bricks. It was pretty wide and pretty tall. and it wasn't an even amount, like it wasn't flat on top. Like there was an odd number of bricks, but they were all stacked uniformly. And then there was kind of an odd number up on the top, like it wasn't completely flattened off and even. And it was just always there. And sometimes I would wander back there. It was a place that was like totally secretive. It was in a back corner of my yard. And there was a fence back there. So it was this area that was basically completely walled in. And uh, I remember going back there as a kid. It was a cool little nook, a cool little hiding place in our yard. And I just accepted that there was this tower of bricks, this like giant stack of bricks. And it just seemed like it was supposed to be there. And then it wasn't until I was older that I was like, you know what, those bricks are from some construction project that my parents did, and those were left over, and they figured, you know, well, we're going to save the extra bricks. Or maybe they, maybe they took out a patio, like maybe there had been a brick patio there before I was born, and they pulled the bricks out and replaced them with something else. You know, it's something like that. There was some sort of project, there were bricks left over. What are we going to do with the bricks? Well, my parents stacked them behind the, the playhouse. And then what do you do with them? I mean, you might use them eventually. They're good bricks. These are good bricks. So you just keep them there. I mean, they're not, you know, that's just like a random storage area anyway. But as a little kid being there, in my mind, it's like those bricks were meant to be there. Those bricks had always been there. Those bricks were a monument, they were an institution. And so at some, at some point I realized that, and you have tons of realizations like that, tons of things that you think were always there, or you think were deliberate or meant to be a certain way, just happened to be there. And you create that in your own environment all the time. And I mean, I realized that today, like when my mom died, speaking of fears, I think my greatest fear... My fear of headlights, or, or my, fear, my fear of headlights, Someone someone's out there who's actually afraid of headlights.
1: I'm afraid of headlights when they're on.
0: No, but uh, my greatest fear was replaced for a time, right after my mom died, just the mail. I was terrified of checking the mail, because I didn't know what kind of credit card debt she had. Turns out none. But I didn't know what kind of credit card debt she had. I didn't know what money she owed. I didn't know what subscriptions she had. I didn't know what I'm. I don't. I didn't know who's gonna come asking for money. I didn't know who, um, you know, is just gonna want something, or who's gonna ask for. You know, you just don't know. I mean, it's all those things. The IRS you get a letter from her bank, you get a letter from this. And it's just I mean, you live in fear of checking the mail, because you don't know everything she has going on. You don't know what she owes, you don't know what she has. And so I I was freaked out by that. Initially, I was freaked out by the idea of just what might come in the mail. And uh, so I kind of got in the habit of like anything that seemed like it could potentially be important. And, like, and I have to say, too, let me just say that it didn't end up being as scary as I thought. You know, knock on wood, like, you know, those first few months after my mom died, it was really weird because it's just like you don't know. Well, I had a pretty good handle on what she had going on and didn't have going on. Like, you know, you just really don't know what's going to come in the mail. But I got in the habit of stacking any kind of important document, any kind of statement stuff that I wouldn't necessarily need to act on, but I just might want for reference. I got in the habit of stacking those on the floor of her office bedroom, just stacking them next to the bed. And I don't know when I started doing that. I mean, probably pretty soon after she died. And I was in there today, and I was doing stuff. I was, like, pulling out tax receipts and just different er, receipts, you know, for tax deductions and all this stuff. And I just kind of looked there, and I was like, I need to clean up this room a little bit. Because, yeah, there's cardboard boxes all over the bed. Everything is cluttered. Everything's become a little institution. Because I realized that I hadn't actually done anything in there since February 2020. Like, I work out in there. I lift my weights in there. But in terms of, like, cleaning it, in terms of really going through things, organizing it... It was exactly the way I left it in February 2020 in terms of like what I had dug out from under the bed, what was in the closets versus what was like out on the floor. And it was just everything had become its own little institution. And I think at the core of that institution was this stack of freaking papers that had gotten monumentally big, like knee high. It would have fallen over if it wasn't braced by the bedpost. And so I just got in the habit, you know, a year and a half ago, however long ago it was, of stacking papers on the floor right there. And a year and a half later, and I'm still doing it, like they're all meant to go there. Like when I get something in the mail that needs to go there or that, you know, oh, it's something with my mom's name on it. I should hold on to this. I just go in there and I don't even think anything of it. I just toss it on the stack. I toss it onto the tower. We call that tossing it on the tower. And, uh, you know, and after a year and a half, I realized, like, I've got to do something about that. Is that going to go—am I going to wait until that's all the way to the ceiling? Because people will do that. People will let things get that bad. And, I mean, speaking of my last house, I mean, I would do that with the—it's not just the closet with the boxes. I remember, like, going through this phase where I was just buying tons of books, like, kind of like coffee table type books. Some of them were just comic books. Like, some of them were collections of comics. Some of them, were, it was just random books. I would go to the bookstore, or the antique store, or the junk store, and just anytime I found like a weird book, I would get it. Usually on a whim. It usually wasn't even anything I wanted to keep, and I got in the habit of like, you know, I put a couple of them on my coffee table. Like, oh, here's something in case somebody comes over and wants to look through something. Here's a couple weird books to put on my coffee table. Oh, I got a couple more weird books at the bookstore today. I'll just put them on the stack with the other ones. And that's also the stack of like things that I intend to go through myself, but really haven't, you know, because that's another part of it. It's like, it's also this like procrastination of like, not only am I going to find a place for this later, but I'm going to actually take the time to read it later. And neither of those ever happen in so many cases. I've gotten really good about reading all the books that I buy, but. Still, like when it came to these books that you flip through that have like illustrations or comics or just, you know, these sort of, I don't know. They, they weren't like what you traditionally consider coffee table books, but they're just the kind of things you could flip through. And then like, sure enough, like next thing I know, that's a stack of 10 books. And now there's a second stack next to it. And that just becomes the place where I put those things. And then years later, like three years later, I look at it and I'm just like. How did that just become where I stack books of that size? It's not aesthetically appealing. Like, it's not appealing to have a coffee table with, like, two stacks of random books. There's nothing—there's no purpose to it. I still haven't read some of them that I bought years ago. But it became this institution, just like that closet did. And that happens in hoarders houses a lot, you know, because that's what a lot of people don't get about hoarders is everything becomes an institution. Like this same thing that I'm talking about, like I'm not OCD. I don't hold on to things too hard. So if, if too hard, uh, so, but, you know, point being, if uh, if even I do this and maybe I'm more pre- predisposed to it than other people, I think I might be actually. But still, like, if I do it to the extent I do, you can imagine what a hoarder feels. Like, everything becomes an institution, but instead of just books and stuff, it can be literal garbage. And that's kind of like the filthy versus dirty, or, you know, filthy versus just, like, unkempt thing. Because there are filthy hoarders. Like, there are hoarders where if you go into their house, you're contending with filth. Like, you're contending with, like, dead animals, animals. People who literally just leave garbage out. Dirty plates. Food. Like, there's people who live that way, and that's a filthy hoarder. But there's also hoarders who hold on to things. They have tons of trouble getting rid of things, but it's mostly just dust. Like, they have rooms filled with stuff. Like, they'll have a room that still has, like, newspapers that came out when they were in high school. They they always meant to read them. And I know a hoarder, and this is sort of... This describes this person. And they basically just don't like to get rid of things because they see it all having a potential use someday. It's kind of like me stacking those books on my coffee table and saying like, oh, I'm going to read this someday. And if someone comes over, which people never do, I don't like having people in my home. Which is, So that just shows you that like the entire idea was based on a faulty premise. Like the idea that, oh, in case all, the, all those people that I invite over... They can sit here and thumb through this. You know, so that wasn't even a realistic idea to begin with. But anyway, the point being, like, I I put those there and I thought, like, some of them, I was like, oh, if I put these here, I'll eventually just be hanging out one day and I'll want to flip through it. I'll be entertained for a half hour. And, you know, this hoarder that I know that's sort of their mentality where it's like they save things that they where they think like oh i'm going to read this like they have they actually have newspapers that are very old and their justification is is that like one day they read part of it and they planned on reading it later and then they just ended up with it it just it became part of the newspaper stack which they have that's an institution a tower of newspapers And they also have old clothes, like things that they would never wear again, you know, from many years ago. Like that's, it's kind of like this functional hoarding. That's what the person I know has. And that just means dust. Like that's not a filthy person. Like I think the lines can get blurry depending on the situation. But for the most part, it's not a filthy life. It's just a a very cluttered, it could even be pretty organized. Everything could be well-organized, but it just takes up a lot of space, and there's a lot of it. But the filthy hoarder, like, we all know what that is, where it's, like, just garbage. And what's crazy about that is that's also a form of, like, building these little institutions in your environment as well. Where, like, what happens with that is, like, one day that person orders takeout, and they just leave the takeout the bag and the the utensils and the cartons, they just leave it all, all out on a certain table or counter, and they say, like, oh, I'll plan on cleaning that up later. Just like I'll plan on reading that later. Yeah, it's the same thing with, like, not cleaning up. It's like, oh, I'll handle that later. And so the carton sits there, and they never handle it, and they get takeout again, and they might put the the takeout garbage... They might put the, the used containers exactly where the first ones were they're just going to put them there because they're like oh well i'm going to put them with the other ones and then i'll i'll deal with both of these later and then the next time sure enough that's where they put their garbage and probably i I don't know how this works i don't think there's a set number (laughs) but uh, after three times they probably just start putting garbage there without even thinking about it When they order food out, they probably just start putting it there and they no longer think I'll deal with that later because that's just become like the dumping site. That's just become like the spot. That's become the institution. That's where those things go. And I think it's the same thing with like when you see where like someone's entire kitchen is like filled with garbage. That insanity that you see occasionally where it's just like truly filthy There's empty plastic bags, like, two-liter sodas, you know, food items, dead animals. You know, I think that all started with just, like, throwing a bag of chips on the ground and being like, well, I'll deal with it later. And then once there's one—it's almost like the graffiti idea, where, like, New York City learned in the 80s that if they covered up graffiti as soon as it happened— it led to a decrease in in overall graffiti in the area. Because like people said, why would we bother doing that when they're just going to paint over it? Like, why would we, why do we even bother covering up the graffiti when we know that the same person is going to come back the next day and just paint over what we painted over? And the argument was that over time, it'll lead to a gradual decrease in the overall graffiti in an area. And I guess it was true. And I feel like it's kind of the same idea where it's like if you see garbage in a place, because it's the same thing on the street, like it's not just graffiti, because if you're like walking down the street, you'll notice that there's usually more garbage in one spot than there is spread out all over. Like somebody sees that somebody put a piece of garbage, you know, in a bush and like somebody else is going to think, well, there's already a piece of garbage there. I'm just going to put my garbage there, too. And so it's like you always see like a pile of garbage and like I have a tendency to, to see that and I think, oh, one person dumped all their garbage here. Like one person dumped all the garbage out of their car on this one spot. You know, someone who's cleaning out their car and they just dumped it here or a homeless person had a bag of trash and they just dumped it here. Like I, I have a tendency to see that and think that, but then I have to remember, that oh, no, this is actually probably one person littering. And then another person walked by and said, oh, I guess that's where you litter. And so somebody else did it. Like, even though littering is this truly lawless thing, and it's as terrifying as driving without your headlights on because it shows such a misanthropy. The reason why littering is terrifying is because that person is saying they think the world is already so ugly that it doesn't matter if I throw something ugly onto it. A piece of garbage. That's why littering is terrifying to me. Because and you know, I, I know this is funny. And I'm half joking. Like the idea of me like going through life just like in like, screaming in terror when I see somebody litter. But no, the reason why littering it's not just because it's fucked up and bad for the environment and all that. I recommend like if you actually see somebody litter, which in my experience is pretty rare. Like, you very rarely see a human being litter, but yet they do it often. And when they, and when you see somebody do it, you notice it. Even though litter's everywhere, for whatever reason, I feel like it's, it's rare to actually catch it in the act, maybe depending on where you live. And where I live, it, it's kind of rare to actually see the hand that dropped the garbage. But I saw a guy, like, just throw a piece of garbage in a parking lot one day, and I, I just happened to be looking at his face as he did it, and he was probably around my age, and honestly, he looked so insanely hateful. Like, even though he was just throwing, like, a an empty McDonald's cup into a parking lot, the look on his face had so much disgust. And it doesn't mean that everybody who's littering is hateful. It doesn't mean that everybody who's littering has
1: an equal amount of disgust. Disgust. <laughs> can't even say it. Disgust. Did you say disgust or discuss? Let's discuss the disgust.
0: Uh, but, uh... I saw that everybody's exactly like this guy, but it was really, it caught me off guard. And he, he saw that I saw him too. And he got really weird. Like he, he still looked really unhappy, but he looked almost embarrassed. It was almost like I caught him pissing or something because he looked, the look on his face was so hateful. And the act of littering is, you know, it's very misanthropic. It's very, uh, you know, just, it communicates that you think the earth is already ugly. Which speaks volumes about the person doing it. So littering, yeah, it's it's as terrifying as driving with your headlights off. But even though littering is lawless, people tend to do it where other people do it. It's like human beings gravitate toward order. And even though you're doing this thing that is incredibly disorderly, putting trash where it doesn't belong, where everybody has to see it, But yet if you see that somebody else littered in a certain spot, you're more likely to litter where they littered because you do kind of, there is a call to order. There is something in us that just, I mean, because that's unconscious. That's subconscious, whichever whichever one you want to use. Someone who's in that state of mind where they're like, I'm done with this, I'm just going to throw it. Well, a lot of people will just throw it anywhere I do believe that people tend to throw it where they already see it. Just like where people tend to put graffiti where it already is. And people will do that in their own home too. That's why you have to nip those things in the bud because you beat habits like that, you you stop institutions like this from forming by not doing it the first time. And that's really hard. It's really hard to not it's hard to know not to do something until you do it. And then once you do it, it's like you might already be in the habit of it. And so it's like when you leave that first takeout box on the counter, it seems really harmless until like you just see it there and in your mind, that's where you put takeout boxes. I mean, I used to be really bad about washing the dishes and there was one day where I just looked at how many freaking dishes were in the sink and how long it had been. And I was just like, why do I do this? It takes a matter of seconds to just wash a dish. And so you have little moments like that where you catch yourself. I mean, it was kind of like me in the papers today, where like seeing this stack of papers that's been accumulating for a year and a half. And I was like, why don't I just put these in a box and put them in the closet? Why have I allowed this to turn into this weird tower of paper next to the bed? how long will this go on and then looking around the room and seeing that the whole room was a variation of that. And you can make up all kinds of excuses. It's not like I'm being hard on myself about it. It's like, yeah, my mom died. And then I was locked down in her house for a year. Which has been fine. And but you know, you can easily see where it's like, Oh, hey. Yeah, maybe finding a better place for the papers wasn't the highest priority. But this goes full circle back to the whole void thing. The fact that there is a void right now that people definitely want to fill. People want to fill this void with something. And I hesitate to say they need to. Because I almost think there'd be something wonderful about saying, Hey everybody, we can do whatever we want now. But let's just use a little restraint and not do it yet. I think that would be an incredible thing for everybody to do right now. Is if we said, if the government, if the government, (laughs) and everybody else who has any power or authority said, hey, no restrictions.
1: Look, ma, no hands. No restrictions. You can do whatever you want. But hey, it'd be really cool if we waited
0: and we just decided we we used our own restraint and discipline to not just jump right back in and try to fill that void maybe we'd fill that void with something more meaningful not that i have the answer cuz to me like what i'm planning on filling that void with is stuff that i put behind you know that i put off like i'm going to have to fill that void in my own life with everything that I put on the back burner for the last year and a half. Not coronavirus stuff, but like, you know, I've had every excuse in the book, like speaking of like making an excuse for like why I allowed a stack of papers to grow and become an institution. Like I've had every excuse in the book to slow this whole process down. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that I haven't taken care of related to my mom's estate, my own life. Because I've just I've, I've operated off this philosophy of just kind of like, I just need to push things a little further. Like the last year and a half, my entire life has just been, oh, there's these things up in front of me, and if I push them just a little bit so they're like just past my fingertips, I won't have to worry about those things again until my fingertips are touching them, which will be a little while. And then sure enough, my fingertips start touching those things again, And I push those things just a little further ahead. And I I say the same thing. Like, oh, I'll wait until my fingertips touch those again. When the reality is, at some point, sooner rather than later, there are things that I'm just going to have to aggressively get out of my way. And I, I could have taken care of them sooner. I should have probably taken care of them sooner. But the reality is basically two and a half months into that process the entire world said
1: freeze freeze
0: and while I can use that as an excuse you know and that excuse eventually runs out I've got to do something I've got to take care of things and so my entire focus is just like oh I have things that I kept putting off and those are going to be the things that I put into the void Those are the things that I just have to get out of my way. Legal, financial matters, the things that we don't like to deal with, the things that we as humans experience and say, why did we create this again? Why did we make it this way again? Because you want to talk about the shape. That's the IRS. I mean, when you're reading IRS fine print and trying to understand What they're even trying to tell you, like you might as well be looking at a skeleton driving an amorphous black Jeep called the Shape on a Canadian highway, because that's what you feel like you're dealing with. You're trying to watch the Shape go around, and that's kind of what something like the IRS is. That's kind of like how it operates. And I'm not even I'm not even complaining about the IRS. I'm just saying that's what it feels like to read their language. That's what it feels like to try to figure them out. But yeah, that's the kind of stuff that I'm putting in the void. I don't even feel creative right now. I don't feel particularly inspired. But I feel that there's something that I have to meet halfway. And I know that in my own life, on a practical level, there are some things that I have to get out of the way that I've continually put off. and i feel like that in its own way is meeting things halfway but again i just want to emphasize like i don't believe in i don't believe in talking about how things are until things actually are that way and that's something that i could learn from i'm saying that you know as someone who needs to remember to do that to not talk about things based on how i think they will be or how i think they were but to think about them To describe them as they are While they are actually here And that's an extremely difficult thing to do Given how much time we devote To the future and the past And it's interesting, you know, the idea of using time To think about different points in time And that's what I've been doing Like, while I feel that I've very much been here for every second, at least I think so, I do think that I was kind of investing in the future during the last year and a half. Where I'm like, you know, there's stuff that I could do right now and a lot of people would probably say I should do and I might even be trying to do. But I'm also willing to kind of invest in the future. and that's sort of what that's sort of a positive spin on procrastination.
1: Hey, mom, I'm not procrastinating. I'm just I'm investing in the future. Because future me is going to be more capable of
0: doing this. But you do have to deal with things as they come, otherwise future you is overwhelmed. And I guess a part of me too, another reason for my procrastination, and this isn't a normal way of my thinking, But part of my general procrastination has been this idea that what's even going to happen tomorrow, you want to talk about institutions, you know, if you grew up thinking the bricks behind your house, like a stack of bricks in your yard is an institution, if you think a stack of papers on the floor of a bedroom is an institution, Well, look at the actual institutions we have, and we think of those institutions, which we call institutions, as permanent fixtures, too. While they might be more permanent than a stack of papers on your floor, they're still temporary as well, and I feel like the last year has shown us that. Like, there were points during the last year when I thought, like, are people even going to pay taxes this year? Are these government institutions even going to function in a month? Do I need to worry about this when this thing might not even be around next week? You know, while I'm being a little bit dramatic and I'm exaggerating a bit, that did factor into my thinking. And then, of course, there's the whole personal side of it. I mean, a lot of people justify all kinds of behavior by saying, like, well, you know... uh,
1: you got to live it up because you might be dead tomorrow you might be dead tomorrow you might be dead tomorrow so live it up live it up tonight
0: and a lot of people justify self-destructive behavior that way like yeah i'll drink that and i'll i'll eat the extra piece of cake i'll eat the whole pizza because tomorrow i might die and you know what if you live that way tomorrow you very well might (laughs) it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy hey, you know, I might as well drink two-fifths to myself tonight because, you know, I might be dead tomorrow. Turns out you might be dead tomorrow because of that. But while I haven't embraced that way of thinking in a self-destructive way, I mean, I've had alcohol in the house since my mom passed. Like, she wasn't a drinker at all, but she would keep gin and some wine for her friends. The occasional gin and tonic, and so I've had this bottle of gin. I've had a couple other weird, like some liqueurs, some bottles of wine. I just I forget they're even here. I don't say that you know with any overconfidence. I just don't really think about them. But you know, even though I've I've kind of had this attitude in the last year of like, well, uh, I don't know what to expect, Tamari. So, uh, you know, why care about that? I haven't embraced it in a self-destructive way. I think I've been pretty good with, like, my, my personal discipline overall. But that said, it's allowed me to procrastinate a lot. While I haven't grabbed hold of the justification of, like, Vi might kill me, so I might as well drink again. You know, while I would never think that way, I have had thoughts where I was like, you know, I don't have to do this now. I don't have to make this change now. I don't have to make this appointment now. And then that's been, that kind of thinking to me has been reinforced by the fact that when you do try to do things, or at least when you were trying to do things almost all of 2020, and up until recently, if not still now, I don't know that this is over. People have been half-assing it, quarter-assing it, quarter-assing it. They have been. Like, when I brought plumbers out, I was like, oh, yeah, they're, they're just doing the bare minimum, but they still want the full payment. Like, even though people are quarter-assing it, they still want the full amount. Even AAA wouldn't get in my car. Like, AAA wouldn't set foot in my car and barely looked at the engine cuz they were worried about coronavirus and I don't blame them. I don't blame any of the half-assing or quarter-assing. I don't blame any of it. Cuz what I'm essentially saying is I've done the same thing, like procrastinating or just, you know, not addressing things that really ought to be addressed. You know, I've been kind of half-assing it on my own but the half-assing adds to like their half-assing adds to my half-assing cuz it's like this self-defeating thing where it's like well I'm not going to get that sink fixed or I'm not going to get the toilet fixed cuz I have two toilets and I'd rather not spend the 100 dollars or whatever it is to get the one toilet fixed cuz I don't even know if we're going to need toilets tomorrow you know, it's it's that sort of attitude, and I'd rather have the hundred dollars in case I need it to eat. You know, it's been very easy to think in those terms. So it's this sort of like survival version of live it up today, because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Except instead, it's like, what's more important to my survival? What's more important to my immediate well-being? and so that's impacted a lot of my decisions. But now here we are and we're we have this void. Cuz again, I'm not going to say I don't know how things are. I don't know what things are like right now. I don't really know. I'm not going to take anybody's word for it. I don't know that anybody will, will really have an accurate way to describe what's going on until after it's already over. I don't know that anybody will accurately be able to describe what's going on right now until later but I can tell you that a lot of people are staring into a, a void right now and this is a good moment for people to show some restraint yeah yeah, support restaurants like support businesses do the things that are necessary to keep society going But I think you can do them with a little more deliberation moving forward. And I don't expect anybody to follow this. I don't even expect me to follow it. (laughs) You know, I, I guess I just see this as a chance to kind of go, well, you know, I mean, my favorite Black Sabbath lyric, what's become practically a catchphrase on this show, destruction of the empty spaces is my one and only crime. An empty space is about to be destroyed. And what people are saying is we want to destroy this empty space by filling it with something. And for me, I just want to get things done. Like I'm not looking forward to any kind of like hedonism or pleasure. If it comes, it comes. Like if that kind of thing finds its way into my life naturally, uh, cool. I could probably use it. I'm not going to be partying. Um, But, you know, if if any blonde with uh, deities comes my way. I saw a beautiful blonde jogger today, actually. A beautiful blonde jogger. Now, men and women are looking at each other. You know, that's the thing, too, is men and women are definitely looking at each other. As they always are. But you can feel it. You can feel it strong right now. And that's a good thing. I mean I think. Uh, maybe this. Uh, this, Maybe what people are feeling right now. I don't know. I mean that's that's a part of it. Because I mean you just think about like. How, how much of a motivating factor that is. Like I'm not even just talking about sex. Or anything like that. I'm. Or anything like that. I'm even just talking about kids. You know. There are kids who. I think about like. When I was in elementary school even. Like the age when you first start developing crushes. And it would just be like one girl. For the whole year. Like there'd be one girl. You maybe have a class with. Or you see around. And like she's your crush for the year. And you're only in third grade. So it's kind of weird. But you're just preoccupied with her you probably don't even interact with her and how important that is and then like if you have that crush like let's say you have a crush on a girl in third grade at that age you're with the same teacher all year it's not like junior high where there's this constant or high school where there's this constant mixing and matching where like you have six periods throughout the day and they change four times a year or twice a year three times I don't even know how many times they change but either way you have a lot of different possibilities as to like who's going to be in your classes throughout the day throughout the year. But in elementary school they stick you with a teacher, at least where I lived, they stick you with a teacher and say you're in this room all year with these exact kids. And that's what kids need I think at that age. I think kids <laughs> I don't know anything about kids, but like I imagine the reason they do that is cuz like little kids pre-puberty need the stability of, like, being with the same teacher, almost like a a second mom. And the stability of, like, being with the same kids as they go through the the learning process. I don't know. There's probably some reason they do it that way. But I know that, like, at the start of every school year, your mom would take you to the school one day, and it was this very... Oh, such an interesting atmosphere. (laughs) Like your mom would pull up to the school and it would be a summer day. Like it wasn't like right before school starts. It might be in August. Let's say it's a month before school starts and your mom would take you to school and they would have these lists posted on the doors, like laminated lists on the front doors of the school and you would find your grade and then you would find yourself on the list to know what teacher you had. And it also listed all the other kids who were going to be in your class. And it, you didn't know. You showed up to school. They probably they must do this through email these days. They must do this through email now. But uh, you would go to the school. You had to actually physically go to the school. There was no phone call. There was no letter in the mail. You went to the school and you looked at the front doors of the school and you found the list with your name on it. And after you found yourself, you, of course, would go to the list and look for who was in your class, your friends. It was more important than the teacher, even. Like, you would look to see which of your friends, which other kids, which kids you liked. But once you start developing those crushes, you look for the girl, man. you look for the girl. And I had this huge crush on a girl in third grade. And I remember being devastated that she wasn't in my class in fourth grade. Like, I remember being legitimately bummed when my mom took me to the school to look at the list. And there'd usually be a couple other families there. Like, it wasn't like everybody came at the same time. It was just kind of like, at your leisure, come and look at the list. At your leisure, come and look at the list. Um, that's what the principal would say. But it was just so you'd go randomly. So you might go and nobody else is even there. You know, you go in the summer. But there was this very distinct feeling that has never been completely reproduced in my life of like what it felt like on a warm summer evening for my mom to take us to the school and for us to look at those lists. And you'd see other kids there, other families, and you may or may not know them. They may just be acquaintances. They may be strangers. But you say hello to them. And there's this excitement because this is going to be your year. This is going to be your whole school year. These are the kids that you're going to be in the same room with all year. This is the teacher you're going to be with all year. These are the girls that you're going to be in the same room as. And at that age, it's not like you're girl crazy. It's just the chances are there's a specific girl, and your year would probably be a lot more exciting if she was there. And so, why I talk about this is because there are kids who missed that. There are kids who probably had a crush on a girl. Maybe they were even about to graduate high school. Maybe it was that age. And uh, those are the sorts of things kids are thinking about. Is Jessica going to be in my class? I never really had a, I don't think I ever, no, I never had any crushes on any Jessicas growing up. There were a lot of them, though. Never had... So it's an interesting statistically that I was never a Jessica man as a boy. Considering how many there were. You'd think I would have had a crush on at least one Jessica, but it doesn't appear to be the case. doesn't appear to be the case. What we've, we The court has determined that he doesn't appear he ever had a crush on any girl named Jessica. But there's some kid out there who in the last year, and I mean, again, I, I'm just inevitably going into this like... Reflecting on Vi, like the very thing I don't want to do is what I'm doing. Oh man, isn't that always true? No, less and less. I'd say that's less and less true. The thing that I don't want to be doing is what I'm doing. But no, anyway, there's some kid though out there who for sure, like he didn't get to have class with his crush. And to not have that is a big thing. It's not that he was going to marry her, but just to have that interaction, that tension, you know, it really screwed that up. It really screwed that process up, that process of, like, puberty. And what that means, just, like, chemically, being around your peers... Yeah, I don't, you know, who knows what impact it'll have? Probably none. Probably none. It'll probably have no impact. But that is the sort of thing that I look back on the most. Like, what was important to me, you know, as a kid, for example, like, you'd think that I would make this big deal over, like, oh, my friends are in my class versus not in my class, and it sucked when they weren't. But it's funny that, like, one of my priorities was, like, maybe the first one was just, like, is the girl I like in my class You'd think I would be way more girl crazy as, as it is now You'd think I would have been one of those kids Who like dates in like fourth grade But I wasn't I just wanted to know There was a girl I liked in my class But uh, Filling the void Some people are going to do that with people As they should You know, some men are going to fill the void with women and vice versa and whatever else people are into. I think they should go right ahead. I think all bets are kind of off as to what people should or shouldn't do right now. I know for me, though, it's like I think I'm. I think I have my work cut out for me. I think there's, you know, I have some big things I'm going to have to do. And I know that I have to meet them halfway and I'm, I'm hoping that the rest I'm, I'm hoping that the the rest of the picture kind of opens up from there. Because I feel like I've been kind of waiting for something to happen for a while. And I think that's been one of the reasons for just the collective procrastination for the collective half assing of everything is I think everybody's been kind of waiting for something to happen. And one reason is because things are happening. Like, even though coronavirus didn't seem like an immediate event in most people's lives. Like, they either had it or they didn't. It either damaged you or it didn't. It either killed somebody you know or it didn't. But there have been all kinds of insane events going on, politically, socially. I mean, I even think about myself just a few months ago. I mean, January and February, I was hitting this great creative stride. And I was like, oh, well, 2021 is going to be a very creative year. It's going to be nonstop productivity. It's going to be nonstop creative inspiration for the first time in quite a while. Because 2020, I wasn't feeling it and I didn't want to feel it. I didn't want to be creative in 2020. I didn't like the idea. I, I didn't. I didn't think that I would have good creative ideas in 2020. And so I didn't really have many. And then 2021 started all this, you know, madness, the start of the month had just ended and I was like, I'm feeling it. I'm in full stride. And there was a little burst, I got some things done, and then uh, designed my website and then my mind just crashed, everything crashed. I was calling it something of a nervous breakdown, something of a spiritual crisis, not the worst I've ever had. And it definitely wasn't now that it's been over for a while. But I mean, that was just a couple months ago. That was just about two and a half months ago. And that's been sort of wiped from my brain even. Like it doesn't even feel like I went through that. And somebody might say, well, if it was only a two week long situation, it couldn't have been that bad. I think it's still going on in its own way. I think what was going on with me at the end of February and early March is still going on. It's just mixed with other stuff. But unfortunately, and maybe it's fortunate, I'm not somebody who feels like a creative person has to be creating all the time. But, you know, the creativity just dipped and hasn't come back. Not that I don't have ideas. Not that I feel like, I, I, I don't really believe personally in writer's block. I know people go through that, so I'm not I'm not saying it doesn't exist. But personally, I do think I can power through things if I put my mind to it. I do believe I can power through a creative block. But a lot of times I just don't want to. A lot of times like when I when faced with the idea of like, oh, should I power through this? Because I know that as soon as I commit to it, I will be reinvested. I will be re-inspired. But it's just the committing to it. And now a couple months have gone by without any real substantial creativity. And it just—it seems like less and less of a priority. Because when I think about what my actual personal priority is, it's honestly it boils down to like I want Batty and I to be comfortable. I want Batty and I to have things to do, places to go, a comfortable place to be. And that actually is the most important thing to me right now. Like, obviously, people I love are a part of that. But when it comes down to, like, what I want out of life right now, it's truly just if Batty and I can hang out comfortably, if my dog and I can just enjoy ourselves, And we're doing that. And to be honest, when I orient myself around that, like when I make that the center of my universe, and I think it already is. I mean, I think it it made itself the center of my universe. But when I acknowledge that, when I'm aware of that. It makes things pretty easy. It makes life pretty easy to prioritize. It doesn't mean there aren't other things to do that I will have to do that I have to do. It just means that that's a great way to center your universe. And for me, it's not about creativity. I'm not entirely sure what it is. I've had less to say on the spiritual front lately, and I feel that's something that I I try to only talk about when I'm truly feeling it. And I know it's a common topic on this show, and I'll do two hour long episodes about how God does resemble man because, you know, God created man in his image because we relate to everything in a way that is familiar to us as we see ourselves. Therefore, of course, God would create us in his image if he wanted us to relate to the idea of God. I'll talk about that for two hours. But then when you can't, you know, like right now, I feel pretty dry. Right now, I feel that it would be disingenuous to talk about that. And that's sort of how I feel when I could be creative, but I don't really want to force it it feels somehow disingenuous and I don't have to fill every crack and space in my life with something that is you know art or what's traditionally considered creative you know I don't have to fill every moment of my life with that so uh, you know but it just it applies down the board with different things where it's like, you know, you don't... It's not what orients you. It's not at the center. At least not right now. Because the interest in that... I mean, I said that wrong. I kind of forgot what I was talking about for a second. (laughs) I mean, obviously, all of that spiritual stuff is very much at the center, but it's it's beyond that. It encompasses all of it. And I think sometimes... To emphasize it too much, especially when you're not feeling it, actually takes away from it. Like if I were to talk about spiritual subject matter, when it's not on my mind, when it's not on my tongue, I'd just be talking about it for the sake of talking about it, and I already feel like I do that when I talk about it. So why would I want to do that any, any more than I already do? So it's not like I have to sit here and say, okay, like the center of my universe is God or the center of my universe is meditation or this spiritual discipline or this idea, this sensation related to the human spirit and the universe. I don't need to make that the center because that's everything already. That's a part of everything already. So in the moments where I'm not feeling that, like when I'm not feeling super engaged by that subject matter, there's a part of me that says, hey, you need to get back to that. You need to get back to that place where you do just want to talk about God. Like there's a part of me that says that. Like like lately it's been pretty loud. It's been like, hey, it'd be nice to get back to that place, wouldn't it? But that place is going to be there. Like I've had enough experiences with that sort of thing to know that, like during these periods where I probably couldn't have an, in I probably couldn't have a uh, intelligible discussion about the human spirit right now. <laughs> I probably couldn't have a very, in, I mean, I can barely say this sentence right now. So there's not really a lot for me to offer right now on that particular subject. That's not gone. It's just not what's in focus. Creativity is not what's in focus. But both of those things, I mean, creativity is much like that spiritual connection, for lack of a better phrase, I wish I had a better way of putting it, trust me. Um, But creativity is a lot like that, because it's something that infects your whole Infects your whole, speaking of filthy Jesus. Um, No, but it does. It kind of infects everything that you are and everything that you interact with, which is exactly what I'm talking about with the spirit, where it's like you don't necessarily need to center that all the time because it's already interacting with the center and everything else around it. It's total. It's the wholeness. So there's no need to preach all the time. Because that's the ebb and the flow of interacting with those things, of coming to understand them as close as you can as a human. But of course you can as a human. You know, of course you're limited as a human, but of course your abilities as a human also give you this almost extrasensory ability to interact with those things and understand them. But uh, anyway, I don't know I feel pretty comfortable talking about it now But that's what I mean Where like I can force myself To talk about those things I can force myself to, to talk about anything But aside from just getting things done That need to get done I don't want to force anything out there I don't want to set the stage in any way Because I think the most interesting outcome I think the most interesting development for the second half of 2021 would be people embracing their freedom but letting that freedom breathe not immediately occupying that freedom playing it cool Acting like you've been there. You ever heard of that one? (laughs) Act like you've been there. I think that's what we should do. Act like we've been there. And maybe we have, maybe we haven't. Probably a little bit of both. But I think the healthiest way to inhabit the new world that people are envisioning, and some people want it to be the old world, Others want it to be the new world. Either way, it doesn't make a difference to me which world it is. Because the key is to just inhabit it naturally and act like you've been there.